welcome to the first Nordic Pod of 2022. I'm your host, Emma Byrne. What are your expectations for the year ahead? A depressing slog through a series of stressful situations or an exciting opportunity to tackle inspiring challenges? Well, I am expectantly excited and inspired to welcome award-winning science journalist David Robson to today's episode of Nordic Pod. His latest book, The Expectation Effect, offers an illuminating insight into the power of the prediction machine between our ears. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. So it's January, and I, for one, am feeling a little regretful about some of my Christmas indulgences. How could changing the way I describe what I eat help me to make healthier choices? Mm, I'm so glad you started with that, because it's really one of my uh, favourite expectation effects. And I guess, first of all, I should just say an expectation effect is this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where um, through uh, changes to kind of our behaviour, our perception, but also our physiology, um, what we expect to happen actually does happen. Um, now, you might think with when it comes to food, like um, if it was just kind of positive thinking, like the secret, you know, that kind of pseudoscience, it would just be like, I'll just visualise myself as being wonderfully thin and like that will happen. But actually... You know, when you look at the science and when you look at the plausible physiological mechanisms, that's not true at all. In fact, that's quite likely to backfire. But um, but what we do know is that our expectations and beliefs about our food can have a really profound effect. And so here, what you find is that actually, if you um, are trying to lose weight and you're kind of eating, you know, a really insipid meal that doesn't feel very satisfying, but you're eating it just because it has low calories, well, that creates a sense of deprivation. And that's really bad for your um, attempts to diet. And the reason that's so bad is because it actually, it kind of, uh, the expectation itself can change our subjective feelings of hunger. So you're, you're more likely to just kind of have those hunger pangs later in the day, partly just from a psychological response, but it's actually changing our physiology too. So if your your brain thinks you haven't eaten enough food, then it starts to express higher levels of the hunger hormone ghrelin. And that's kind of important because that in itself can kind of trigger um, a greater appetite. But it's also really important because ghrelin um, seems to have an effect on our metabolism. So it slows our metabolism because, you know, if you're feeling hungry, you don't have enough resources, like you don't want to be wasting energy burning it. So it actually tips us to adiposity in that way too. Um, so yeah, if you're trying to lose weight um, after indulging a bit too much over the holidays, I would actually say, you know, you should really um, wet, choose your foods. You can choose foods that are kind of lower calories, but don't try to sacrifice things like the taste or, you know, the presentation, like choose things that you really, really love that you know are going to be satisfying. Maybe just have slightly smaller portions rather than going for some kind of dish that just is going to set you up to feel uh, kind of depressed and unsatisfied for the rest of the day. Like soup. You mentioned that soup or anything described as healthy uh, don't make our brains feel like we've eaten enough. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so amazing is that, yeah, for most of us, not everyone, but most people have this kind of association between uh, healthy and kind of flavourless and unsatisfying. And, you know, so actually food labels themselves can create this expectation effect. And what they found in one study was they gave people some uh, kind of chocolate bars that were either labelled as like a health bar. They were told it had like 
uh, quite high levels of protein and the nutrients, but there was nothing there to suggest that it was actually going to be pleasurable to eat. Or they labelled it as this kind of tasty treat that, you know, got people salivating. Um, and what they found was that actually the people who ate the healthy chocolate bar not only felt more hungry than the people who ate the tasty chocolate bar, they actually felt hungrier than people who hadn't eaten anything at all. <laughs> So giving yourself a, a, a Weight Watchers, sorry, other low-fat, low-calorie foods are available, but a, a Weight Watchers meal could actually backfire in that you're thinking, well, now I'm even hungrier than ever. Yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, I have to say, actually, sometimes I do eat Weight Watchers branding, uh, branded food because sometimes it is actually really tasty. But mm -hmm. yeah, but I think that's the problem if you're choosing something that you don't really want and it's got all this branding on it that's suggesting that it's also kind of really lacking in kind of calories or satisfaction that is going to backfire. Yeah. And I was astounded by the effect that memory has on our feelings of hunger, on our appetite. And the study that you mentioned about somebody with amnesia. I mean, this study really helps to provide like a strong foundation, I think, for the other expectation effects that we've described. Um, so with this amnesic patient, um, he had a form of um, uh, amnesia that meant he couldn't produce new memories. So he could remember bits of his past, but you know, every day was a fresh, like he, every hour was a fresh, even every minute practically. And what the scientists did was they, at dinner time, they kind of gave him his usual meal, which he, you know, ate uh, without questioning really. And then a minute afterwards, they kind of just took his plate away, let him uh, wait for a minute, and then gave him another meal. And he ate that all of that without even reporting any increase in his kind of appetite or um, in his satiety, no decrease in appetite, no increase in satiety. So they took that away and gave him another plate and he was actually just about to eat it. But they decided that enough was enough and that actually eating three whole plates of food in one uh, sitting was maybe a bit too much. So, so you want kind of in, informed consent for that sort of ethical mm. uh, dilemma in yeah. a study. But so is this why mindful eating can really help with increasing feelings of being satisfied or decreasing that sort of rebound appetite a short while afterwards? Mm, yeah, I really think it is because so I would say like the memories of what we've eaten are kind of creating an expectation of fullness in much the same way that the kind of labelling was that we described. Um, now, the problem is if you're really distracted while you're eating, you're not really forming like a very good memory of that meal. So you're not forming a memory of like having enjoyed the meal, of the contents, of the quantity. Um, so lots of studies have shown that when people are working or, you know, even just watching TV while they're eating, that that can actually kind of that can weaken their memories and then increase their snacking later because they don't have this. Their brain doesn't have this expectation of feeling full. So whatever you're doing this January, don't be cramming a sandwich at your desk. Sit down and properly enjoy those meals. And you mentioned the idea that the brain He's quite parsimonious. It likes to make sure that we're going to have enough calories. And if the brain expects that we might be without the energy that we need, it will say, you know, we need to eat more. The same seems to go for exercise as well. Things like hitting the wall is the brain trying to protect us against some terrible deficit. But what are the kinds of things that I can say as I start to, you know, restart my running program in the new year, as I do every January, to make my exercise not just more enjoyable, but also potentially more effective? 
Right. I mean, this is really important, I think, because, and it's certainly been true for me in the past, that we have really good intentions, but also bad expectations of what we can achieve. Um, and, you know, for me, that came from just really hating PE classes at school. You know, like my teachers were horrible. Like I was, you know, quite small for my year, quite young for my year. So like, I just never did well. And, you know, it had all of these bad associations. And for ages, I just felt that I um, was just like not cut out for exercise. Um but then I was really heartened to read the study from uh, Stanford. They have this big lab that looks at the uh, mind-body connection. And what they did was they kind of gave people genetic tests um, that measured the um, whether they had a, a kind of a beneficial variant of the CREB1 gene. So that can actually increase endurance. It kind of does things like... Um, uh, it affects the kind of temperature as you're working out, so if you feel really uncomfortable, and even things like the gas exchange within your lungs. Um, but what they did was actually, they kind of stored the results, but they gave the participants a sham result. So the participants weren't necessarily being told, you know, whether they had this kind of beneficial gene or not. Um, and what they found was that actually just telling people that they had the beneficial gene actually did a huge amount of good for their workout. So it did increase their endurance and it did increase the efficiency of their um, their kind of gas exchange in the lungs. And they did actually enjoy the exercise and felt more comfortable because of that, even if they didn't really have the beneficial gene. And what was especially remarkable about that was that actually the expectations on some of those physiological measures were more powerful than the gene itself. And so that really kind of changed my perceptions of my own fitness because it, it made me start to think, well, you know, like I, I kind of have formed all of these bad associations with exercise, but they're not relevant anymore. You know, I'm actually like physically like very different from when I was uh, when I was at school. And, you know, like a lot of those judgments from like uh, the other kids or the PE teachers weren't fair anyway. So I just kind of started to keep an open mind and thinking, well, like, uh, you know, if I do the workout, is it really going to be as bad as I think it is? Maybe I'll enjoy it. And also I started to look more specifically at my um, kind of incremental progress. So, you know, day to day, whether I was improving rather than comparing myself to other people. And that really was beneficial to me, like in helping to shift those expectations. And yeah, like my performance increased and I just found that I just loved working out. Actually, it really completely changed the experience for me. Yeah. I mean, you give some great examples in the book of things that you can focus on to help keep yourself motivated to make exercise more enjoyable uh, and to essentially just make it a more palatable or even enjoyable part of your life. But I'm interested that you mentioned your teacher. I had very similar with both sports teachers and art teachers. Mm. Uh, my my expectation effect was very much that I am both uncoordinated and untalented. And it's taken me to my uh, fifth decade to start doing both sport and and art in ways that are enjoyable. I read in the book about the expectations of educators and how incredibly powerful they are, even when they're practically tacit. What do we know about teachers' attitudes and how that can affect kids' performance? Yeah, this is like hugely important. Um, so, you know, like the other expectation effects that are described like with food labeling you know that's kind of internally generated but like you said like our teachers can kind of and other adults around us when we're children kind of transmit their expectations to the um to the people that they're kind of meant to be responsible for um and so yeah there's now a huge amount of research showing that actually teachers expectations kind of can raise or lower a kid's kind of feeling of self-efficacy and self-control and then that in turn can then affect their academic performance 
um, you know, this was uh, the first uh, Pygmalion study was performed in the 1960s, and it was actually quite controversial for quite a long time. But like over the last decade in particular, people have really started to look at this with much more rigorous um, research. And, you know, they're really finding that it is quite powerful. And I think what's especially important is that actually the negative expectations often coincide with like societal prejudices. So um, the expectation effects here are especially important for um, kind of girls, for people of colour, um, and people from uh, poorer socioeconomic backgrounds. So, you know, those, and what's I think troubling there is that actually those kind of expectations are especially difficult uh, to shift, but the research shows that there are ways to do that. And actually just getting a teacher to kind of record their lessons and then look at it and see kind of how they might be communicating these low expectations can actually be quite powerful in changing their behaviour, which in turn then helps to improve the children's performance. I thought that was a fantastically detailed study that you mentioned um, and really brought to life in the book the fact that you know you had these two groups of teachers, one of which was randomised to general training and the others where they looked at their teaching moment by moment on video camera and noticed things like that they were generally asking boys about maths questions mm. or asking white children to speak before they'd ask or if, if indeed they asked black children to speak at all and that these teachers weren't conscious ever of doing that um, but you mentioned you know for example the idea that girls in spatial reasoning tasks tend to develop a deficit over the years of education so what are some of the things we can do if we've internalized some of those you know sort of depressing messages about ourselves and our ability to read maths or pass uh, read maps or pass exams or do equations i mean there are um a few good interventions now actually and you know meta-analyses so these kind of analyses that look at the kind of whole body of literature do show that they're actually very effective so you know it's quite consistent research here um one intervention that I think is um, kind of deceptively simple but really effective is called self-affirmation. I'm always a bit worried about talking about this because it very much sounds like um, the kind of pseudoscience that I mentioned, that kind of uh, positive thinking where you'll just be telling yourself like, you know, I'm brilliant at maths or I'm, you know, great at sport. Um, that's not what it means, actually. Uh, what's self-affirmation is actually almost trying to distract you a little bit from the kind of negative expectations. And it just involves um, kind of writing down, say, 10 values or qualities that you really, um, that are really important to you. And then p picking one in particular and writing a short essay about why that's important, how you demonstrate it. And all this does is kind of, it, it reminds you that actually you're much more than the particular challenge ahead of you. So, you know, if you're taking a difficult maths exam and you've, you know, been led to believe that you won't be as good as the other children, it's actually telling you, well, like, look, you've got all of these other qualities in your life that make you kind of special and important and that show you have like a, you know, the ability to succeed. And that that in turn then seems to kind of translate to this greater feeling of self-efficacy that can then help to improve performance. And, you know, there've been some really remarkable results showing that actually these effects with regular kind of practice, because no one intervention that is going to kind of um, produce miracles, but actually when it's used regularly, it can really have like a good effect um, over the whole of a child's academic career. Yeah, because you mentioned that our brain is essentially a very sophisticated prediction machine. And it sounds almost with the self-affirmation that you're advocating 
presenting some more evidence to train this prediction machine that we might otherwise overlook. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, um, because one of the things that some people ask me about the expectation effect is, uh, am I just saying that we should like deceive ourselves or, you know, like... um, uh, just be kind of have this kind of vague optimism but it's not like that at all actually it's the fact is that like and there's so much good scientific evidence here is that the brain does act as this prediction machine where it's kind of basically weighing up its current resources and trying to kind of predict what's going to happen in the future and then kind of adjust how it allocates those resources according to those mental simulations um, now what you're doing with something like self-affirmation is you're just helping it to reassess its um Uh, predictions of what resources it has and what it can afford to spend so you're just kind of helping to calibrate that like you said um it's actually just like a very object i see it actually as being a form of objectivity because often it's our negative expectations that are like totally irrational um you know whether we've been taught them by other people or whether we've just kind of developed them ourselves but being pessimistic doesn't mean that you're more rational actually um contrary to kind of popular opinion and so actually it's just kind of trying to kind of set that balance so it's a bit more realistic. Although you do mention the depressive realist hypothesis, which I have to say hit home hard. (laughs) Um, The idea that people are very aware of their own sort of mortality and (laughs) the fact that we're not finite also tend to be somewhat prone to depression. I'm not quite sure which is chicken and which is egg, but um, yeah, I know that I find it easier to internalise and hold on to negative feedback than positive feedback. I feel like that's a a fairly common thing and a very British thing. Um, it's interesting you mentioning, you know, it's not about deception or self-deception. And yet one of the strongest expectation effects that we know of, the one that I think quite a lot of, of, of us were taught about growing up, is the placebo effect. And I was astounded to see that our knowledge of the placebo effect maybe affecting clinical trials. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I love this study, um, partly because I think it does have really important implications for medicine and for our own health, personally. Um, so essentially, like, uh, drug companies have like faced a real problem over the last couple of decades. And what they found was that the new drugs they were developing for things like chronic pain just weren't um, outperforming the placebos very well. So it was much harder to get kind of approval for these drugs. Um, Now, it could be just that the medications themselves just weren't very effective. But actually, when you look at the kind of data over the decades, you find that's not true. The drugs are performing as well as they ever did. Um, You know, they're reaching the same level of pain relief as they ever did. It's the placebo effect that's been growing steadily. And what one uh, researcher from California did was he just compared that to kind of um, the press coverage of the placebo effect. And what he found was that over exactly the same period, that you also find a lot more attention to kind of the mind-body connection. More people are understanding the potential benefits of the placebo. And so what he thinks happened in that in all of these trials is that actually, you know, participants have always known they might receive the placebo or the drug, but they don't know which. And in the past, like you would be pretty gutted if you suspected you'd received the placebo and you wouldn't have very high expectations. Now, like people are like, oh, well, I might have the placebo, but like maybe that's going to help me anyway. So you know, I know I'm getting kind of some kind of support and help. And so that, those raised expectations had increased the size of the placebo effect. So that eventually, like, they're not outperforming the drugs, but they're much closer than they had been. 
it's really seems to have narrowed that margin between the drug and the and the placebo to the point that you mentioned the fact that there is some open label placebo prescribing. Yeah, so that kind of adds more um, evidence to this hypothesis and also shows how this could actually be really useful to deal with things like the opioid crisis. So um, there have been quite a few studies, but my favourite one comes from Portugal. And essentially these researchers um, took these participants with chronic pain who were taking um, other kinds of painkillers and they just told them that... Um, they just explained, educated them about the mind-body connection to make sure that everyone had that basic knowledge. And then they just gave them a big jar of pills, very clearly labelled placebo pills. So, you know, no deception there at all. Uh, but what they found was that um, over the next few weeks that these people actually had a clinically significant reduction in pain. So if they were going to seek approval for these placebo pills, they would probably be approved um, as not that you need approval for a placebo, but if it was this kind of drug, the effect was big enough that it would have been approved. Um, so that's amazing. And all it was was sugar pills or gelatin pills. I can't remember which, but you know, no active ingredient there at all. And actually, then they did a follow up five years later. And it seemed that having taken part in this experiment and kind of understanding that mind body connection a bit better, that these participants were still actually seeing benefits to their, um, to their kind of pain relief. So you know, they'd kind of taken that with them. And that's something that I find um, in a lot of the chapters of the expectation effect, is that it's like once you've kind of seen evidence of these things for yourself, actually then it can just help you to apply it in other areas of your life and you know you don't you don't necessarily need to be taking the placebo pill to even have the benefit at all but you can actually change your expectations in other ways yeah I mean, it's astounding how much our our brain not wanting to be too dualist about this but how much our brain is able to do things like either generate analgesia or reframe that experience of pain so it's more manageable and it's something as I'm getting a little older and got a slipped disc in the last few months and now feeling somewhat decrepit um, I'm hoping that I can you know use mindfulness for for pain management because uh, I'm definitely falling to pieces but I was really intrigued by the chapter on aging and the amazing study that was done with the people who were in the 1950s house so if I want to feel younger Instead of signing up for TikTok, should I just be immersing myself in Britpop again? Yeah, I mean, so this study was by Ellen Langan. It um, uh, kind of occurred in 1979, and she took this uh, this uh, bunch of like uh, older adults and then kind of recreated a house as if a monastery, in fact, as if it was 1959. And you know, the music was the same. They were you know, listening to kind of crooners rather than kind of ABBA. <laughs> and, you know, they were, um, all the newspapers and magazines were from that era as well. And um, she persuaded the participants that they really should like, not just kind of reminisce about the past, but live as if it was actually 1959. So like really turning back the clock, you know, they tried to have active discussions about the politics of the day. And, you know, like as if it was actually happening. And she found afterwards, um, after this short intervention, it only lasted a week, that some signs of ageing did seem to uh, be kind of uh, modified a little bit. So, you know, um, their uh, arthritis seemed to have improved a little bit, their cognition improved, their gait improved, they were walking more upright. She took photos of them before and after and got people to kind of rate how old they looked. And um, actually afterwards, like people seemed to think they were a bit younger, like physically younger. So it was like really, you know, one of those really intriguing uh, scientific studies. Um, I have to say that one was um, 
had the problems that you often find with studies from the 70s. So it was quite a small sample size. But there has now been abundant research, you know, looking at thousands of participants um, that has really shown that actually our beliefs about ageing, whether we see it as this kind of period of decline and disability or whether we see it as a period of potential growth and opportunity, you know, accumulated wisdom, that those beliefs can really influence the way we age right down to the cellular ageing, like um, the biological signs in like the... Um, expression of genes or the length of the telomere kind of protective caps at the end of our chromosomes all of that you know actually is affected by our beliefs and it's kind of incredible but the research is so strong now I think it's hard to deny. So I'm probably better off believing that this is an age of incipient wisdom rather than putting Spice Girl posters on my wall and pretending Tony Blair is still Prime Minister. Uh, you could do both if, if that will I make you both. feel better. Why not both? I, I definitely think, you know, you could prescribe some Spice Girls and there's nothing wrong with that. But That would be wonderful. I'm sure it would do wonderful things for both my mood yeah. and my blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just want to say Expectation Effect is a fantastic book. It's not all about, you know, how to cope with the fact that it's January and I'm 47. Um, It's full of fascinating studies. And I want to get on to the bit of the podcast that we sometimes call Shit I Wish I'd Known or even Shit I Wish I'd Known, which is about the journey to writing a book because a a lot of our readers are fascinated, uh, our listeners, sorry, are fascinated about how a book like yours comes to being. So your background is predominantly as a science journalist. How does it compare writing, you know, pieces to deadline versus writing a whole book to deadline? Mm, Yeah, I mean, I think like with this book, um, I definitely like benefited from having written a previous book. Um, So with The Intelligence Strap, which was my first book, and um, I found that very difficult to make that adjustment. And I think the, the thing that was hardest for me was just that, um, I was used to getting that immediate feedback from my journalism, you know, like constant interactions with my editors. And then, you know, when you write a book, as you know, you're kind of thrown in at the deep end of it. It's like you get your your proposals accepted. You've had a meeting with your editor and then you just go away and write it and you don't have regular updates. And, you know, it can be quite a lonely process, I found. Um, and like I felt like it left room for a lot of anxieties. Um, so, you know that feeling that you're never quite sure if you're doing it properly and then I think that kind of made the writing process itself harder like I felt like I got bogged down in uh, a lot of kind of deliberation over things that I don't think even really mattered actually but um, you know having been through that once though I think like for the second book I was able to kind of just chill out um, a lot more. Um, I tried to get more regular feedback if not from my editors but then from uh, you know, people around me, um, which helped. But I also did try to keep up more of my science journalism. Um, and what I found was that actually I was just more productive. So I actually still wrote the book in the same amount of time, but I also produced like quite a bit of journalism. And, you know, and I think that's just because I wasn't wasting so much time in kind of, you know, agonizing de- deliberation, that actually like it just was more energizing to kind of combine the two. I did find those sort of, particularly with the first book, those moments of self-doubt of just wanting someone to sort of tell you if it's okay yeah. what you're doing. Um, yeah, the lack of immediacy of the feedback is a is a tricky one, particularly if, like me, you're a little prone to anxiety and self-doubt. <laughs> and what were the studies that really inspired you to want to write this book? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as a science journalist, and I'd always specialised in like um, medicine and psychology. So actually, 
it was inevitable that I was going to cover things like the placebo effect. Um, and I did, like, regularly over the first few years of my career. But it was actually when I started... Um, so it's just a weird coincidence, but I'd um, I kind of, you know, I'd got depression and I started going on these antidepressants, um, you know, just really common pills. Um, and like one of the side effects I was told about uh, was just that, you know, you might suffer headaches and, you know, like as the kind of chemicals readjusting your brain. Um, and I did experience these headaches and they were actually like turned into quite bad migraines. Like it was really difficult to go to work and to concentrate. And I was kind of constantly taking painkillers to try to kind of relieve myself of the pain. Um, but then at the same time, I also had been commissioned to write a piece about the nocebo effect. So that's like the placebo effect, but it's the opposite. It's when you're told about the side effects of a drugs, for instance, that that actually causes harm to you and causes you to show those side effects purely from the expectation. And we know that this happens because if you compare the control arm of a drug where people are taking placebos compared to those taking the active medication, often both sides experience the same side effects. So, And this was absolutely true with the uh, migraines that people experience on the uh, antidepressants that actually, like, there's probably a few people who are um, experience something that comes directly from the chemical action of the drugs, but like by far the overwhelming majority is because of these expectations. Um, and so learning about that actually just then helped to relieve me of my pain. So um, I think it was like I read that study in the morning when uh, you know had a really bad migraine while I was reading it, then went out for lunch, had some water, came back in the afternoon, and it was already kind of receding. And I didn't experience the migraines again after that point. And for me, that was quite important because it showed, first of all, that nocebo effects, like, aren't just real, but like, I mean, it's just ludicrous to say that they're kind of imagined or any psychogenic illness. It's like ridiculous to say it's imagined because that pain was like, it wasn't just me kind of, you know, overreacting. Like it, it, it felt just as real as any other headache that I've ever experienced in my life. It was actually a lot more painful than, you know, like when I kind of broke my foot or whatever you know it was um absolutely like um there was no difference in the pain and actually we now know from the experiments that you know you're seeing physiological changes too so changes in the um uh, kind of blood flow in the brain for instance that uh, the vasculature of the brain like that's actually when people have an acebo effect that's happening in just the same way as it would if someone had like a headache that's not caused by expectations um so that just you know, it was kind of all of that just made me think, well, this is really powerful. And I kept on kind of keeping tabs on the research. And then I think it's when I came across the studies on aging, um, that then I just thought like, well, this is like, there's such a comprehensive story here that I want to tell that could have like a real effect on people's lives in much the same way it was having an effect on my life. So this was the kind of book that, you know, I wish had been written when I was like, in my teens or 20s, because I think it could be so transformative. Definitely. Um, it's interesting talking about the the side effects. I take sertraline for depression. And I remember when I first started taking them and a GP friend of mine said, uh, don't forget, there's lots of studies show that if you drinking, drinking plenty of water helps reduce the side effects. And then about six months later, I said to her, your tip about the drinking lots of water was really good. And she went, oh, yeah, that tip. Yeah, no, I did no studies on that. I just I say that to all my patients. 
<laughs> they give them antidepressants and they just go really every time really works so yes um so now when you know my daughter is having to take some medicine for something or having her flu vaccination at school and she's like it says there might be side effects like that's fine drinking plenty of water um it's always reduces side effects have a have a glass of water and it'll help with the side effects Ooh, i find that and it's like so darling please don't listen to this um, <laughs> but yeah apparently this is a common gp trick is drinking plenty of water or go for a little walk it'll help reduce the side effects mm, and, and we yeah just, it's a placebo against the nocebo and it's ugh, i love it yeah i just find that so fascinating because actually there has been a study showing that you know lots of um doctors do admit to using placebos which could sound like a bit problematic because you shouldn't be deceiving patients. But I and I think like yeah, like sixty percent of GPs in the UK say that you know placebos can be kind of ethical in certain situations. And I actually think this shows like the uh, a perfect example of when I think it is ethical in that like th- there's nothing wrong with telling someone to drink lots of water. Like that's actually you know good for you anyway. So I can't see any moral objection to that. And then it is helping to reduce this nocebo effect just by mitigating that negative expectation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could even, you know, by special pleading, get out of it by saying something like, "You may experience some side effects." People generally find it helpful to drink water. Both of those statements are true. They have nothing to do with one yeah. another. Yeah, exactly. You could sort of defend that at the at the pearly gates. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I'm so glad that you have unearthed this research because it is utterly fascinating, and. Who are the writers that inspire you? So when you're sort of faced with, I don't know, a blank page or you're hoping to reach the heady heights of some stylistic, you know, person that you emulate. For me, it's always Terry Pratchett, which is why my editor is going, can we remove some of the footnotes, please? Um, But who is it that inspires you, either in fiction or nonfiction? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tough, actually, because sometimes like when I... Often when I read like a really good nonfiction book, especially, then I find writing, going back to writing actually can be a bit depressing because you're just like, why am I, <laughs> why can't I be that good? Um, the same with someone like reading like Jonathan Updike, um, who, you know, <laughs> I realise he's problematic in some ways, but like, um, but in terms of the fluency of his prose, it's like, it makes me feel like I'm still like in primary school, just learning to write when you realise there's such a, uh, bridge to kind of uh, cross before you could ever get there you know it's almost like superhuman um, so I'd say with non-fiction someone like Oliver Sacks would be like that um, yeah he's uh, I'd, yeah I mean in a way he is inspiring but maybe uh, not an inspiration because it's, there's not much I can do to emulate that really um, yeah who else uh, I mean I do like Malcolm Gladwell despite you know, sometimes people think he's quite superficial, which I think is a fair point. But I mean, I think in terms of his storytelling, you know, like it is a good way of communicating uh, scientific facts and like big ideas. And I think when you hear him in interviews, he's, you know, he's open to those criticisms and he's open to debate. Um, Yeah, I guess those are the ones that I'd really say. Yeah, it is. I I remember reading the first Richard Osman mystery books in the Thursday Murder Club I can't remember which day of the week Murder Club the one that isn't the Agatha Christie one and just going I hate you what Faustian pact have you signed where are all your bad first drafts how is this your debut mystery I (laughs) what crossroads did you barter your soul to the devil and and yeah those ones I, I really struggle to sort of think what can I learn from 
Um, but yeah, I have to say people like Mary Roach, who, you know, listening to her talk about her writing and seeing her writing and going, yeah, it is possible to, to be engaging and friendly about a subject that people sometimes find so intimidating as, as science. And that's one of the things that I, I love about your book. It is very much a, a sort of um, a, a good friend telling you useful and interesting things. Mm, thank you. Which I think is yeah. yeah it's, it's so it's a it's a tough thing to do, particularly when you're translating things from a domain that is not often written or communicated in that way in its in its raw form so thank you so much for the expectation effect which is available today in all good bookshops it is a transformative read that will help you tune your prediction machine and thank you so much for being our guest today david where can people find you online um so on twitter i'm d underscore a underscore robson and my website is davidrobson.me and there's a contact form there where you can send me an email if you'd like so follow David on Twitter, look at his website and make sure you get the book. And you can subscribe to Nonfic Pod on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners who love nonfiction by rating the podcast and by sharing it with three friends. Exponential growth. It's not just for viruses. Thank you very much for listening to Nonfic Pod. by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. Music